Gertrude Stein a fascist? I ask this question with a wide piano. <laughs> Hi, Margo. Hi. <laughs> okay, so this is the uh, first slash second bonus episode of Pearl Sound. I'm joined here with Margo. Hi. <laughs> to talk about Gertrude Stein. <laughs> More broadly, her politics and a lot of people's strange interest in them is mm -hmm. kind of this pervasive desire to either condemn her mm -hmm. as a fascist or to kind of try to redeem her yeah try to redeem her the language poets as we'll talk about mm -hmm. try to make her subversive yeah the liberals just kind of try to make her um a non-compliant yeah like, like a nice old lady yeah kind of rebellious old lady in the Ruth Bader Ginsburg kind of way like she just loves democracy and right I, you know and we're, we're specifically going to be talking about the mother of us all because that's mm. I think in a lot of things like labeled in the blurb as a celebration of democracy right which it very well might be but the Celebration is, I think, quite a bit more ironical and yeah. nuanced than mm -hmm. a lot of people would care to talk about because it doesn't really conform to the way they try to explain her. And I yeah. think for our purposes, we're not going to try to do that because mm -hmm. her politics aren't terribly coherent in the first place, which is yeah. a wonderful um, tradition among American poets. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's typical for her to be painted in, like, the, uh, exiled American, uh, fascist abroad, uh, which I hope we can dispel some of that or, like, you know, add to its ambiguity, because it's definitely not clear-cut in everything we've looked at. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, where would you, where do you want to start? I think we should start with the Barbara Will mm -hmm. article from 2012. It was... Right. I think they had... This is on the government website? Yeah, it's on the National Endowment um, <laughs> for the Humanities website. Um, I think there was, like, a showing of Stein's work at the Met, and mm -hmm. all the press it generated was essentially concerned press about um, Stein's politics. There's, there's quite a few articles. This one is by Barbara Will, who's a Stein scholar and mm -hmm. biographer of the detractors of Stein. She's certainly the most coherent mm -hmm. and the most relevant. Uniquely, Alan Dershowitz, <laughs> the famous defense lawyer of, like, Jeffrey Epstein, um, was, was one of the people who condemned Stein and who condemned the Met, I believe, for mm -hmm. not appropriately advertising Stein's problematic politics. Which That's is right. That's right. Quite an interesting thing for um, a man who is now a very outspoken <laughs> critic 
critic of cancel culture to be talking about, but it's there. I, I, his article is very boring. He just for some reason—it's also reason, very short. He just jumped on the like the Stein anger train. I just, yeah, just it's for... interesting. The one thing interesting about this article is that he—I guess it implies that he thinks Stein is a, a creator of beautiful art. I. I think he only knows Stein as, like, a collector, which, okay, which okay. I mean, is, is another problem with a lot of these articles. And obviously it's somewhat un- understandable because it, it was a display of the artworks she had collected, her uh-huh. literature, you know, right, it's right. hard enough to sell as it is. I don't think anybody <laughs> would want to be standing up at a museum reading it. Well. Until later, we'll get into that. But, um... <laughs> Yeah, it's a, the Alan Dershowitz one is bad. The Barbuville one is good because she starts it off by pointing out how many of our beloved modernists mm. are fascists. Um, she, you know, she makes a funny joke and says it's easier to point out the yeah. modernists who certainly did not hold fascist politics. And, you know, I mean, it's a little bit longer of a list than she makes it out to seem, but she mentions the most clear, like, Beckett and James Joyce, you mm-hmm. know, who were, you know, Beckett was in the French Resistance while yeah. Stein was hiding, mm-hmm. and James Joyce, you know, was, was very openly a kind of radical. I mean, his politics weren't, were just as weird as Stein, because yeah. he cared way more about writing, but he was very... Also an interesting kind of, like, pro-nationalism that I don't think is as easily frowned upon. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, he was pro-Irish nationalism. That's, yeah, that's what I mean. But, I mean, you know, that, that was understandable given yeah. <laughs> his, the struggle against colonialism. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, she places it in a good context. And then um, she kind of talks about the primary issue with um, with Stein and, and World War Two Because, mm-hmm. obviously, Stein lived in France. Occupied for, France. Yeah, yeah, and she lived in France for all of her artistic career. Yeah. Um, she, you know, she very quickly moved out of the u.s after she decided to become a writer yeah um her, her dad had enough money to put her up in france in like a nice estate for a little while yeah yeah she, 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 she got allowances brother, pretty frequently yeah, she and her brother got allowances and they had enough money to collect you know art yeah i and mean they also they were with, frankly geniuses because they were yeah. the, the art they were buying all the Matisse's and, and Picasso's and Cezanne's were very cheap at the time. Nobody really cared right, about them yet. Exactly. So I mean, but you know, she was comfortable her whole life, except mm-hmm. for during World War Two when no one was comfortable in France. But um, during the Vichy regime, uh, mm-hmm. and during the time of occupied France after the Vichy regime was kind of, um, you know, more openly under the control of Nazi Germany, she was sort of you know, living in her small country home with Alice Toklas and their one dog. And, um, you know, what people yeah. find curious about that is that she was a Jew, and she was a Jew in a fascist-controlled, Nazi-allied state, and she was, you know, in a kind of open-closet lesbian relationship, mm-hmm. and she was a collector of artwork that had been pretty clearly condemned as degenerate and politically Mm -hmm. offensive so you know it it seems like she should be a candidate for some kind of deportation if not imprisonment and extermination and you know so that leads a lot of people to ask what happened and i mean we we do know 
what happened. I mean, first of all, <laughs> like when what Barbara Will does a good job of pointing out, along with um, the critique of Barbara Will and a few other people, a few of the detractors of Stein and Renate Stendhal's article, is that, I mean, you know, she was in a small town in occupied France. And obviously France was less keen on deporting people. You know, mm -hmm. they, they did it because the Nazis told them to, but it wasn't nearly as mechanized. It wasn't mm -hmm. as professionally done. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, Stein was in, like, a frankly irrelevant small town. So there really weren't a lot of people out looking for each other and generally you know these rural villages like the one stein was in were pretty tight-knit and people mm -hmm. you know for each other. yeah they would look out for each other and just basically just were decent to each other didn't yeah. snitch i mean she was just an eclectic old lady at that point yeah she was an eclectic old lady and also i mean she was rich and i think they liked having rich people around <laughs> yeah so she was she was safe <clears throat> to that extent um the curious aspects. Yeah, one of the things, one of the events that makes it more curious, however, is that Stein did not give up her property in Paris, where right. she housed her entire collection. Yeah, when the war broke out, I mean, she wasn't in Paris. Yeah. Uh, Picasso was, and he went to her estate to make sure things were okay didn't let soldiers, like, you know, confiscate everything. Yeah, and, well, and in, yeah. he didn't actively do that. So a few <laughs> times, um, first I think it was Vichy soldiers, and then I think it was literally the Gestapo, right. or another German force, came in to look Gestapo. at her paintings, ostensibly in order to confiscate them. But, like, both times at the last minute they were called away. And, mm -hmm. you know, they didn't touch a single artwork, even though right. all of these were deemed degenerate and were just generally offensive to the public eye at the time these weren't mm -hmm. you know like naturalized as good yeah. canonical artworks until after world war ii anywhere on earth mm -hmm. especially not in like a fascist state yeah and i mean what we do know is that stein was friends with bernard uh Faye. Faye. bernard, bernard Faye, Faye. who was a um uh, scholar of american culture and, and a the, Frenchman yeah. and during the time of the Vichy regime he was the director of the Bibliothèque Bibliot yeah which was just like like just did like the big sort of organizing scholarly institution so this yeah. guy obviously had power in academia um, in, in, in academia just like, and in the government of Vichy France yeah um so, so he was like a minister of culture kinda. yeah yeah, it's slightly lower, but he was an yeah. important guy, and he was able to defend Stein's artwork and mm -hmm. Stein herself. And this seems, like, fairly unproblematic <laughs> as it is. I Until mean, you I, learn about his side hustle. Yeah, he was also... Identifying like, French Freemasons. Of, yeah, in charge of identifying French Freemasons. Yeah. And he was good at it. I think he deported, like, Over a few... Over a thousand. Th he got a few thousand arrested, and I think a thousand of these men... And women probably went to concentrate or went to prison camps, some to concentration camps, and yeah. then he died. Yep. So he wasn't a good guy. No, by no means. And but he was clearly responsible for defending Stein's collection, if not Stein herself. Mm -hmm. It's also important to note that he was he was also gay. Um, mm. 
he, and he was obsessed with American culture and, and <laughs> American figures like Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, in the same way that Stein was. So they had like a very clear connection. Yeah. Um, you know, they were very close, but I mean, they also shared a lot of politics, which is right, where Barbara exactly. Will begins to make her case that Stein was not only like a kind of excused or excluded population in Vichy, but like a kind of de facto collaborator. Yeah. For and I mean, we can look at that further with her translations. Yeah, if you wanna. yeah. because what, what people found out, I think many years later, when they started to go through the archives, Stein's yeah. archive material in like the 60s and 70s, was that she, during the time of Vichy France, mostly before, um, mostly at the time when Vichy France was like, at least pretending to be an independent ally right. of the Nazis. She was translate, translating Philippe Pétain's speeches, and Philippe mm -hmm. Pétain was the leader of Vichy France, and obviously he facilitated a lot of genocidal mm -hmm. and authoritarian policies mm -hmm. that Hitler basically, you know, was, was compelling France to take under. And obviously this yeah. man did it enthusiastically. Like, he mm -hmm. was a fascist. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, Stein herself holding conservative political beliefs was pretty fond of the guy. And I think a lot of people in the beginning in France were just because, you know, the war had kind of ended for them. There was mm -hmm. peace, you know, their sons and husbands got to go home. Mm -hmm. Um... You know, but 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 Stein was kind of a stranger there, and her interest in the guy was obviously more than utilitarian. I mean, she was translating mm. his speeches, and um, there, there's another article on Jacket, which is <clears throat> yeah, know, by this large, yeah, which is part of this large defense of Stein and her political beliefs, organized by Charles Bernstein, the yeah. um, language poet. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and interestingly, yeah. Uh, Barbara Will, one, another one of her books is on, you know, this connection between Stein, Faye, and uh, Pétain, yeah. uh, uh, about her translations and uh, yeah. potential collaborations. Yeah, and I mean, the uh, Paris article does a pretty good job of describing what Stein's translations were like. Yeah. And um, they're pretty strange. She kind of does them, like, she kind of transliterates them. Mm. So they sound weird. I mean, they don't sound weird for Stein, but they sound weird. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, here's an example of uh, a new law, a prelude to important constructive reforms will decide the relation of capital to labor. It will assure to each one, and then one is crossed out, justice and dignity. Yeah. And, um, you know, they're, they're all quite strange, but, um... Uh, but of course you want to ask yourself, like, what a figure like Stein, like, what her interest was in translating this to English? Like, was this, you know, scholars like Juliana Spar in her book, um, what's that one called? Fuck. In, uh, uh, in Du Bois' Telegram, uh, like, you know, puts forth a, a theory, like, you know, when she was teaching, uh, tender buttons to her class in Hawaii, that, like, you know, her Hawaiian students were, like, you know, this seems like a, like, you know, someone learning a language. 
So, like, you know, the, it, it, she kind of introduces this this uh, potential paradigm for Stein's kind of, like, monosyllabic kind of, you know, Orschbacher kind of tendencies. But the... And, you know, pseudo-Dada stuff. But, you know, uh, the question of, like, why you would go with a fascist political speeches yeah. remains, you know... Yeah, I mean, yeah. she was obviously interested in yeah. the guy, and whatever her interest does mean, that that is the problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the issue of transliteration complicates that. I don't think it yeah. solves anything. I mean, because even Pari offers up, like, well, Barbara Will says that she transliterated instead of translated because every word Patain said was significant and, right. like, under his authority. It was kind of... Mm-hmm deference to authority that mm-hmm. compelled her to transliterate but then we could also see you know possibly someone arguing that it's deconstructive or kind yeah. of too playful for serious political speech for it to be like transliterated like that and kind of you know the rhetorical flow of it is, is disrupted by you know it's movement from one language to another yeah sure and i think unfortunately that's kind of where it leaves us yeah. like i mean if we're, if we're trying to do an unbiased reading which you know the, the sort of jacket to language affiliated people have their bias and the barbara will mm-hmm. has her bias and the, the people like barbara will i I, th- I think you know if, if you look at just the facts of what she did it's very ambiguous mm-hmm. so you know i think this compels us to turn back to her writing yeah and not just her translation product projects but like the things she has said mm. about politics and has said about the relation of politics to literature yeah. i think the relationship between the artist and you know the facts of their country and mm. you know, the political age they live in is, is something that stein cares about mm. i mean she she makes it confusing and i think that you yeah, know, the Renate Stendhal article does, like, a pretty good job of making her appear more liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she, she does a few things that are useful. Like, there's this ridiculous thing that um, Dershowitz <laughs> refers to, where he says that Stein sincerely recommended Adolf Hitler to the Nobel Peace Prize <laughs> Committee. And yeah. If you, like, look at the quote, it is so very clear that she's being sarcastic. I actually think that's pretty useful to pull up. Yeah, please. Oh, yeah. So she, she said this to the New York Times magazine. Mm-hmm. I say that Hitler ought to have the Peace Prize because he is removing all elements of contest and struggle from Germany. By driving out the Jews and the democratic and left elements, he is driving out everything that conduces to activity. Phil, stop. That means peace. And <laughs> if you know Stein or understand humor, yeah. um, it's pretty clear that's a joke. So we, we can cross Hitler off the list of people <laughs> she supported, which doesn't say much. But, you know, again, I think that's what this article in particular does is just kind of depoliticize Stein. Um, right. Another important quote of hers that she refers to is one of Stein's more famous quotes about the relationship of the artist to politics and, you know, like, worldly affairs or what have you, Mm -hmm. where she says, writers only think they are interested in politics. 
They are not really. It gives them a chance to talk, and writers like to talk, but really no real writer is really interested in politics. <laughs> mm -hmm. And she might have believed this. She also believed in talk. She thought talk was right. important. And again, we just kind of come back to the sort of placid complication mm -hmm. that maybe would just recommend us to put aside the issue of Stein and politics. But I, I don't think this is necessarily a point to end because mm -hmm. um, in, in quite a few places when Stein isn't directly talking about politics as like a positive program, mm -hmm. when she's talking more clearly about history and like one's experience of history, she does bring art into that yeah. dynamic in an incredibly interesting way. Like one of my favorite pieces in the autobiography of Alice B. Toklos, which is Gertrude Stein's biography of herself through the voice <laughs> of Alice B. Toklos. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, there's a scene where Alice, Picasso, and Stein are walking down some street in Paris. And they, this, is, this is right at the start of World War II. They see, um, like, this big, like, anti-artillery gun or something, and it, it's camouflaged. And that's the first time they've seen camouflage. It's the first time anyone really saw camouflage. And um, the, the quote from the passage goes, All of a sudden down the street came some big cannon, the first any of us had seen painted that is camouflaged. Pablo stopped. He was spellbound. He said, it is we that have created that. He said, and he was right. He had. From Cezanne through him, they had come to that. His foresight was justified. That's so good. And I think that <laughs> posits a really interesting relationship of like mm. the avant-garde with whom <laughs> Stein was mm. very clearly allied and a part of. You know, it posits this relationship between the avant-garde or just the most advanced artists and, like, technological and historical development. I mean, uh, we were talking about this the other day, and I mean, when you presented this bit to me, you were like, you know, because, I mean, camouflage, at least, you know, the connection to Picasso and Cezanne is the... I think you said, like, the melding of background and foreground. Yeah, the collapsing of, of space yeah. on, you know, into a single plane. And yeah. I mean, that that's... Or, you know, in the collapsing of the apparently significant object into mm. the apparently insignificant background. Right. <laughs> you know, and, you know, it's, it's deceptive and kind of instrumental and in a different way in camouflage. But I think that that formal similarity is really important. Yeah. And, you know, what Stein is saying is that there's somehow, like, just a larger civilizational movement of which the artists are at the front. Right. I mean, to connect this to the Hitler quote and the writing quote, which, I, which I'm very interested in, uh, the, the, it's, it's really funny that she says, like, you know, the, the ceasing of activity is what equals peace, because that's totally against her project as a writer, exactly. which is just, like... I mean, just, like, holding her collected works in your hand is, like, huge and fast and just, it is, like, embodied movement. Mm -hmm. You know, it's agitated. Um, and to, to <laughs> so, I mean, you know, Stein as an artist is, I think, like, you know, an, an antithesis or, like, an antagonism to stasis. Yeah. You know, at least in her, like, kind of 
frenetic monosyllabic speech and and verse yeah no that's a good point i mean she also has a piece an early piece called patriarchal poetry Mm -hmm. and that whole piece is very hard to read it's positioned as an essay but it sounds much more like the poetry she wrote when she was writing her portraits which Mm -hmm. are Weirdly, some of her most famous poems, even though they're the hardest to read. But um, I I was going to make another point just real quickly. Like, you know, she says, like, politics are just an excuse for writers to talk about what they want to talk about. I mean, that's like the function of most of her titles and tender buttons, you know? Yeah. They're just starting points and like, you know, half half opaque anchors that allow her to to bridge onto something else. So, I mean, like, you know, even in the... uh, fucking what is it geography of america is that what it what is it everybody's autobiography i think so i don't know what you're going to say (laughs) no i'm just saying like you know the the works where she's her portraits even where like you know she's like all right i'm writing about picasso right now and and then uses that as an excuse to go to everything else and Mm -hmm. i mean you know it's easy to read that as a as a kind of material like a historical materialism of connection and development like I think you were just about to yeah Mm -hmm. Mm. yeah and like I was saying with the patriarchal poetry piece I mean she's very against stasis there she identifies like the patriarchal impulse with the kind of the vertical axis the integrative axis of poetry that seeks to like tie together every word into a poem into a single meaning a single idea and what stein is attempting to do through what we would call repetition but what she would call emphasis yeah is 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 just to kind of destabilize that Mm -hmm. is to kind of champion the motion over the work over its integrative capacities yeah which is to say time over space yeah and it's that that's a really good way yeah. of putting it. Yeah, no, no, I, I like that quite a bit. Um, sorry, that was a good point. Yeah, um, nice. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, we can start to think of Stein's, like, weird historical materialism mm. because she has a very great essay called What is English Literature? Yeah, and let's, she, let's do that. And I, I, think, I think that helps us really to understand, you know, maybe what the hell Stein is trying to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because this is, this is the essay that is like, you know, there is no daily island life in America. Yeah. Whereas in England, etc. So, I mean, you know, it's a specific, you know, knot where politics and literature are entwined. Yeah. You know, in, in this kind of what we as Marxists can look at as like a historical development kind of way. Yeah. You know, in... in what is English literature? She says something, you'll probably remember it better than me, where, like, you know, every every person, whether they're English or not, or know what England is, or know that England is an island, will know English literature when they hear it. Because supposedly English literature has all of England wrapped up in it, you know? Right. The, the, so, the quote is that one who reads English literature, even if they don't know what English I- England right. is, will be able to tell that it was written by someone who lived... And a nation that was an island. Yeah, that you, has you a daily island life. <laughs> from the way that the poetry or the prose was like internally coherent. Right, um, that it's that, supposedly adhering to some English logic. Yeah, that, that, that originates or, or comes out of the place. It, it's, right, right. 
you know, it, it's very beautiful. Um, I'll, I'll try to find the exact quote. Yeah, it's a weird, like, mix of Plato and Hegel in a way I don't really know how to make sense of. Yeah, so, I mean, when, when she's talking about English poetry, she's, you know, and it, it's kind of ridiculous to quote her, because <laughs> the, the process of reading Stein is entirely accumulative. Right, right. I mean, you can emphatic. give it a go if you want. But, um, she says... Just to pick kind of a random point in this paragraph. <laughs> then there is the poetry that too comes out of a daily island life, because granted that a daily island life is what it is, and the English daily island life has always been completely what it is, it is necessary that poetry is not what they lose or what they feel, but is the things with which they are shut up, that is shut in, in the daily, the simply daily island life. And so the poetry of England is so much what it is. It is the poetry of the things with which any of them are shut in in their daily, completely daily island life. It makes very beautiful poetry because anything shut in with you can sing. There are the same things in other countries, but they are not mentioned, not mentioned in that simple, intense, certain way that makes English poetry what it is. And, you know, from that quote, I, I kind of hope that you're able to see... <laughs> Or just get a sense of the way she's talking about things. Because, mm -hmm. you know, in some way she's doing something akin to what Harold Bloom does. You mm. know, just talks about, like, this kind of effective... Does this kind of effective criticism. Says, like, how it feels. Like, you're just supposed right. to understand the feelings, of the, the contours of the piece. And that, mm -hmm. you know, from the contours we can kind of... Of the piece, the intensities of the motions, and just mm. the dynamics of the form, we can deduce... Things Some essence. about the poem or the poet or the written work's relationship to the whole of literature. Right. And what Stein is attempting to do is say that there are like feelings or atmospheres um, particular to particular times. So mm -hmm. like, she, you know, so like she, 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 <laughs> she says in there like, you know, but you have not read all of English literature yeah. like I have. Yeah, that, that's another important point um, yeah. is that she claims... She, you know, she actually, she starts off the piece, and this is, a, this is the first lecture in her series of lectures that she did in America. Right. She starts it off by talking about knowledge, and um, she has this funny quote where she says, <laughs> One cannot come back too often to the question, what is knowledge, and to the answer, knowledge is what one knows. <laughs> and I think the way she recommends literature is by saying that, it can all be known, and her proof of right. that is that she knows it all. <laughs> yeah, is that she knows all of English literature, and it's it's a clearly an incredibly circular argument. Yeah, because that's what she likes that. <laughs> but I mean, it is kind of true. She yeah. says there's a great deal of literature, but not so much that one cannot know it. Mm. You know, and I think right. what she's talking about is is precisely the way there are these particular feelings or atmospheres to to periods of literature that like you know that there's some kind of historical force at work that, that yeah. allows us to index and understand different moments and from that understand you know you know different moments yeah. in the literature and from that understand in this kind of microcosmic way the actual moments themselves mm -hmm. um you know particularly interesting to me I, I think you'll agree to the rest of us. It's kind of the end of the piece. 
per- just because mm-hmm. you know in the beginning she kind of describes like the post you know like norman invasion mm-hmm. england is like kind of an idyllic time to write because first there was this frenzy of the kind of doubling of language when you know when it became middle english yeah you know she says like from the time of like after chaucer up to shakespeare there was still this kind of separation felt in the language that you know all the poets and writers were kind of sussing out in their work where you know there, there wasn't this conflict because it had been resolved but the language was still affected by the conflict it had taken in like it was all part of the internal dynamics of the language and they were able to mm. to, to like really <laughs> I, don't, I don't know like embody the, the the function of the evolution of it right in that they each kind of write in their own idiolect specifically in their orthographies mm-hmm. you know each each individual writer had their own ways of spelling because standardization hadn't happened yet and so it shows language in a in a developmental stage yeah yeah, and I mean, what she claims, which is harder to prove than I, than what you're doing, Tilda, is <laughs> like that, like, you can just feel it, you can just <laughs> feel them choosing the words. So, mm. as I was, as I was saying, um, of particular interest to me and Tilda, and I just think to anybody who is interested in, like, the political implications of literature, um, is when she begins to talk about, like, 19th and 20th century English literature. Mm-hmm. Um, Stein doesn't hold punches, and she basically (laughs) says that English literature is done after the very early 20th century because their empire fell apart, industrialism killed them, and um, they no longer own everything. Mm -hmm. But just to go back a little bit in their history, Stein points to um, a constitutive change in... 19th century literature that has everything to do with like the colonial hegemony of the English Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, when she's talking about 19th century literature, she identifies it with sentiment, which I think is mm-hmm. probably the, the least controversial thing she says. It, just, <laughs> it seems like sentimental literature. Mm-hmm. You, you can just feel that. I think sentiment <laughs> is something we're most talking about. But um, what's what's particularly strange here is, yeah, she's, she says, if you live a daily island life and live it every day and own everything, which means everything in the world, or enough to call it everything outside the island, you are naturally not interested in completion, which is something she says they're interested in before. <laughs> it's really not worth explaining. <laughs> But you are naturally interested in telling about how you own everything. Right. But naturally, more completely, are you interested in describing the daily island life? <laughs> because more completely, as you are describing the daily island life, the more steadily and firmly are you owning everything you mm. own, which being practically everything could be called anything and everything. Oh, yes, you do see. You do see that. Right. And so, one, that's fantastic. And two, like, there's a specific ideological factor to imperial language here, where, like, you know, if if empire has its grasp on everything, like, you know, we could say contemporary American hegemony does, you know, it's apparently, according to Stein here, like, its drive is to then describe everything inside it, 
which is a further internalizing but, like but cannibalism. describe it as the outside though i mean what's interesting right, about to, time to is project that, it elsewhere yeah, is which that, is a further yeah, horizon is that there's still in like a distinctly english place and english identity like mm-hmm. you know these were still colonies they were still other right. officially and the official task of literature was still to like kind of reproduce this yes. kind of idea of English life, you know, in, in a very abstract way. But, you know, she does describe how, how changed it was. Um, mm-hmm. and, and again, it's hard to point to exactly, but I think what is significant is the way that Stein ties together, you know, colonialism and, the, you know, basically the desires of writers. Mm. Right. You know, and I think that's kind of what makes Stein weird. <laughs> and, um, yeah. you know, at once very archaic and very modern is that she's kind of still very, she's not kind of, she is very concerned with the kind of great figures in writing, you know, mm-hmm. so even though she's heavily historicizing, she doesn't take that as, like, a suggestion to become interested in all kinds of writing. She still mm-hmm. remains somebody interested in, like, the highest achievements of literature, Right. Even though she's willing to say that a lot of the desires of the writers are produced, you know, communally, collectively, mm-hmm. or materially, rather than, like, born out of the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and unfortunately her description of 19th century literature is especially... <laughs> especially fraught and confusing (laughs) um and what's also interesting to me is kind of the way she's unable to describe the lake poets who were also writing at the time of all the other victorians but they were you know the early romantics Mm. you know they were coleridge wordsworth um byron a few others who (laughs) don't know anything about but i mean you know what's what's interesting there is that they at some level you you know at like what is at once kind of a reactionary and revolutionary angle we're kind of resistant to this kind of hegemony like they they were resistant to more precisely the effects that the power of the english empire and its riches had on the society you know i mean they were the yeah. earliest critiques of industrialism and they kind of critiqued mm-hmm. it on like aesthetic, yeah, an aesthetic and basis. phenomenological grounds mm. like that it was just ugly and bad for you <laughs> yeah. these satanic mills and <laughs> you know the way the fields are spoiled yeah. um, and she doesn't really do a very good job of <laughs> writing them off <laughs> uh yeah, she just kind of says they had other ideas, <laughs> but that they, but that it didn't work, which I mean is true. She basically <laughs> says that they were trying to do something they were unable to do, mm-hmm. and we, we can again take that as we will. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. she begins to talk about what happens after the Victorian era. Um, after 
you, you know, into the late 19th century, early 20th, I think, the, the, you know, what's called the Victorian era, and 1901, generally. So, you know, I mean, it, it fits nicely in the century, and Stein, Stein talks about herself as someone who enjoys centuries as a tool of measurement right it's very neat <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah and i mean <laughs> yeah that fact shows her like tendency to just you know mediate between infinity and finitude yeah and to to grow really big and then negate it yeah but um she you know she, she talks about the kind of internal coherence of english literature is coming out of the daily island life <laughs> And she talks about how after Victoria and the Boer War and everything like that, there was really no longer a daily island life or, you know, there was a kind of island life that was no longer daily. And again, it's not really explained what that means. What... Do you think uh, Alan Dershowitz would have something to say about the daily island life? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> horizon of American experience that we can only have a daily island life as a pleasure-seeking individual. It's no longer... Well, being from Long Island, I can confirm that. Yeah, but it's interesting because when she talks about American literature and its ascendancy, it's, it's not that it supplanted English literature because now American literature was the internally coherent right. one. You know, it's literally the opposite. Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly, the reason why American literature supplants literature from England is that America becomes a New kind of... Yeah. England, too. Yeah, it becomes its own powerful nation. It begins doing its own colonialism. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, at the same time, it does begin to produce its own great works of literature. She mm -hmm. talks especially about Whitman... Emerson and Henry James, mm -hmm. Whitman, and, you know, and the three of those guys are like the biggest influences on her. Emerson clearly um, influenced her essay style, mm -hmm. um, and Henry James' these complicated sentences make their way into a yeah, lot I mean, of the poetry. She studied under William James. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, the the James family's been there for a long time in her in her milieu. Yeah, um, and she says more confusing things that we can't really um, <laughs> elaborate on. We can't really elaborate. The the kind of point is that you can't. But she does say something interesting. She she talks about the way other people have tried to talk about American daily life. Mm. Um. And she says that America doesn't have one. That that's her. <laughs> that's her take is that quote the way it had of often all never having any daily living was an american one and then to kind of bring in the counter argument she says some say that it is repression but no it is not repression it is a lack of connection of there being no connection with living and daily living because there is none that makes american writing what it always has been and what it will continue to become so there we have <laughs> the not daily 
not island, not life of America. And the, the way she talks about this affecting American literature and just the feeling this has makes more sense. Um, mm -hmm. She talks about the disembodied way of disconnecting something from everything and anything from something that was the American one. And this, this right, kind of... I mean, if you if you view for Stein America as negation, it's helpful here. Um, like negation of what? England. Right, right, right. No, I'm sorry. Like, I mean, you know, if for Stein, the only way to define America is negation. You know, this is politically, this is uh, in terms of literature. You know, America does not have what England has in terms of literature because it does not have etc you know she's only able to define it by negation and this is interesting because you know it's where she's from and so you know it asks us about her where she considers herself in this lineage like you know mm -hmm. being an exile being um you know a, a, an outsider in France and you know producing literature in in the uh, uh in the like circle of Parisian she was in you know, I mean, at least this is what I'm interested as of, like, you know, where does she think she fits in right. in all this? Where does she view herself? Which, like, I don't know if she does. Um, no, I mean, <laughs> she pretty clearly identifies herself with Henry James. Right, who was also an English-American. Yeah, I mean, but she identifies herself with Emerson as well. And, I mean, mm. one thing that's more of a kind of gut feeling for me than anything else is that Stein has a great affinity with Whitman. Mm. I would um, agree with that. Yeah, she has Even a kind if it's of, just in, like, for me and her, like, sweeping No, grasp. no, she has a kind of expansiveness and a refusal to conclude, mm. like, a kind of willingness of contradictions that... Yeah, no, you know, I'd, is, I'd absolutely is agree. Whitmanian, and she also has a very strange civic nationalism that's just about as dysfunctional and unsatisfying absolutely. as Whitman's. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, I don't know if she's exactly saying that you can only define America in negation. I think she's kind of saying that, you know, just America lacks something, but it still has some of the drives of English literature. So it still has this desire for completion and oneness, but it doesn't right. have, like, a simple, like, kind of life that's imminent in all things like the way she talks yeah. about Chaucer is this kind of like Orphic that like right you know the, the way she talks about all the poets from that time is that they can kind of just pick and choose what sings and then they'll sing of all creation <laughs> yeah you know it, it's weirdly romantic for her but it, it's totally what she thinks mm. and you know meanwhile what she seems to suggest about America what she seems to suggest where she talks about disembodiedment and the way of disconnecting something from anything and anything from something like the way of just really yeah. pulling particulars and universals out of material into this kind of very abstract plane mm. i mean it, it's it's just it's very strange but i think that's something we can see in english literature she i mean in american literature, i was gonna say yeah i mean she talks women. about um james and yeah and she talks about how in American prose, um, the emotional, like, unit 
in mm. American prose is the paragraph. She yeah. says sentences are not emotional, <laughs> paragraphs are. Yeah. And I think that's kind of something you can see where there's this kind of attempt at, like, making tangible an intangible feeling mm-hmm. in American writing that, like, there's, mm. you know, a kind of deferral of content and rhetoric in American literature, the willingness of contradictions and complexity right. that kind of integrates into like this painterly unity, this kind of abstract unity that we might be able to identify in the artwork Stein mm. surrounded herself with. You know, this willingness to forego like a kind of coherent singular point in favor of you know, the more spectral unity i yeah. think is something we can identify in american yeah, prose and point poetry. to melville <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah no totally there's a kind of there's this kind of like like abstract unity or like unity in disunity that right I, I think exactly typifies... it's uneven development which is congealed right yeah right and uh, so i think this is like a way that stein is for one thing, correct, despite the way she puts herself forward as kind of <laughs> querulous right. and meandering. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also a good way for us to think about, um, you know, again, Stein's relationship to like, materialism, the way right. that, right. you know, America's lack of coherent national <laughs> identity, the way America's, especially, you know, at the time... The, the mythic times of America, which were Stein's favorites, mm-hmm. the American 19th century, and the kind of way they celebrated, at least in the mythology, a sort of plurality and democracy, and a kind right. of republicanism. Um, which women loves and yeah, takes Yeah, which women loves. That, um, you know, it, it's true that there really isn't a single thing to talk about. It's, it's this whole just expansive, moving thing. Right. And I mean, I, I think, think interestingly, we could, when, when you said before, like, you know, what, you know, if America, like, you know, lacks an essence like England had, you know, at least for Stein, I mean, the only thing we could see in America is that, is the perpetual movement that we kind of have inherited, mm-hmm. even if we lack, like, some gravitational force. All we have now is profit motive and expansion. Right. You know, and I mean, you know, even though these are terms Stein wouldn't necessarily use, um, I, I think that's a way for us to I- interpret them. Right. I, I think I my tendency, though, is kind of reading her through Ashbery. Right, Ashbery's of course. reading of her. Yeah, lead, lead us to Yeah, because, I mean, Ashbery's poetry, I think, is, is concerned with a kind of daily life. Right, I, I mean, agree. It's very easy to tie to the creation of a new kind of American identity the middle class, the suburban identity, which supposedly has this, which does, I mean, Mm. kind of have a single coherent daily life. There is a manufactured consensus. Mm -hmm. There was, you know, literally a manufactured homogeny. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and and I think Ashbery does a wonderful job of, like, replicating the motions of that. Yeah, I'd agree. In his poetry. And I think what he's kind of saying Stein is doing is that she's intuiting that there is some kind of shared something in American life. 
um, that, right. that, that can be felt, even if it can't be, like, continenced or yeah, made imminent. Or boiled down. Yeah, made imminent in a single thing, which, mm-hmm. I mean, is very interesting, because then you're tying American identity to, like, the refusal of integration and, yeah. you know, the refusal of a kind of dominating language. And I think that's very mm. useful for us now when we think about the way power mm. operates because mm-hmm. it's really not fascistic or domineering. It's diffuse and mm. and kind of plural. Right. But I mean... Would you be able to expand on refusal of a dominating language or... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if like, like, I'm just talking about, like, Stein's patriarchal poetry, the, okay. way, the way it's willing to, you know, again, like, like champion motion over, okay. over the domination of a single thing, the way it's able to move from right. thing to thing, mm. um, you, know, you know, and I think you, you would be better able at saying how that translates into, like, a kind of society of, of control, it's more oh, cybernetic. Yeah. But, um... Just to go back to Ashbury, um, I think one of the good things that Ashbury does in opposition to, like, the language poets is that, you know, I think he's takes Stein at the word. Right. In a lot of ways, the, the language poets have a tendency Isn't... to paint her as somebody who is, like, attempting to be a radical. Right. And, like, anti-canonical. But, I mean, Stein, seriously, as we can see from what is English literature, just thought she was, like, the next person. I mean, you know, famously, she said that the most important works of literary modernism were The Making of Americans by Gertrude Stein, (laughs) Ulysses by James Joyce, and The Remembrance of Things Past by Proust. Mm -hmm. And um, she was right on the money with the other two. (laughs) I own. She was just plugging her new book. I own the. Yeah, good. She is a good self promoter. She kind of <laughs> branded herself in um, the autobiography of Alice B. Douglas. <laughs> she, she was, you know, Gertrude. Alice is always saying Gertrude Stein and never Gertrude or never Miss Stein. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> no, um, but I mean, you're you're right to point out, you know, the the Ashbury tendency versus the. Uh, language tendency you know i mean ashbury has always i think you know in in our heads especially but even canonically stood separate from the language poets the language poets maybe uh kind of in a delayed fashion tried to recuperate ashbury's you know poetics as a precursor to language poetics so you know later language uh formulations yeah. but you know i mean even ashbury was alive when this was happening and you know i don't think he was i don't think his later poetics would have agreed. I mean, you know. language poetry died before Ashbury died. I, I know. I, I think that's <laughs> all we have to say. Like, yeah. Ashbury was producing new and exciting poetry in 2017. Whereas. The he died, whereas the language poets had like a decade where they were uh, doing. The language poets were doing like free speech campaigns and turning to neoliberal fascism yeah they're very confusing things um, ashbury stayed true and blue but um there's this wonderful quote in ashbury's essay on gertrude stein's stanzas in meditation Mm. which is called the impossible um he says both stanzas in meditation and henry james's the golden bull are ambitious attempts to transmit a completely new picture of reality 
If these works are highly complex and, for some, unreadable, it is not only because of the complicatedness of life, the subject, but also because they actually imitate its rhythm, Mm. its way of happening, and an attempt to draw our attention to another aspect of its true nature. Just as life is being constantly altered by each breath one draws, just as each second of life seems Mm. to alter the whole of what has gone before, so the endless process of elaboration which gives the work of these two writers a texture of bewildering luxuriance, that of a tropical rainforest of ideas, seems to obey some rhythmic impulse at the heart of all happening. Fuck. Okay. And I mean, that's a really beautiful (laughs) quote, and I think Breath and I want to talk about breath and rhythm there in a second. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think the what could be the problem with that quote is, you know, depending on how you're minded, is that it's like maybe too mystical. It sure. just seems like there's yeah. like a single truth that Stein gets at. But I think if we follow Stein's historicization of the daily island life <laughs> and its disappearance. What Ashbury is saying Sign is doing is describing or, like, inscribing the right. rhythm of a life that can be felt, of a kind of daily <laughs> national life that yeah. can be felt but not articulated or described or explained. Right. And I think that's something that's... beautiful that Stein's work and Ashbury's work does. And I think there is possibly a problem with that, mm. that Stein has noticed ex- been has seen expressed by critics which is the problem of repression and i think that when mm. they can describe as the absence of a daily life could actually be just the mystification of the reality of american life which is just the domination of workers the are you telling me the daily island life was ideology all along (laughs) no i mean it's it's true that you could say that stein's unwillingness to point to a kind of coherent american experience is just you know a a mystification of class relations Mm -hmm. because i mean it pretty significantly the Daily Island life in England is only temporarily preserved by colonialism right. and then totally destroyed at the time of industrial capitalism. Mm-hmm. And I think that leaves us at an impasse a lot of people could have gotten to just before reading Stein and Ashbery, <laughs> um, which is just that these kind of complicated avant-garde works can tend to mystify Mm -hmm. and cover up the basic facts of life under capitalism. Right. But I guess what I'm hoping we can do is maybe figure out how these things aren't incompatible or how at least it's useful for us to sit inside these mystifications yeah. Or whatever, um, mm. you know. You know. I mean, I'm not sure why, but I mean, it's <laughs> it's pretty clear from her detractors and her defenders that people somehow believe Stein is like politically relevant. Right. Even if they couldn't tell you, they could they could point to the external factors, mm-hmm. but you know, our yeah. friend Ben Lerner would be like, "Hey, wait." Yeah, and I mean, I think it, it's 
you know, I mean, I think it's us to decide. It's up to us to decide. If, you know, we should just let the bed, the dead, bury the dead. Should we let the bed bury the shed? Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> I you know. I think that that's a worthy question to bring up. These works still have their power and mm-hmm. the, the, their strangeness. Mm. And I mean, it's worthwhile for us to think about why the most radical artists, you know, were doing this kind of thing, what kind of politics are animating them, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I think that there's probably maybe better critics than I will be able to point out the way that like the romantics you know, maybe Stein and people like that, in in addition to having, like, a kind of reactionary sentiment or, or feeling about industrialism, also have a kind of forward-thinking progressive yeah. aspect, or at Genuine the very critiques. least... The, yeah, 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 at the very least, these critiques are multivalent. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, so, in preparation for this, we watched The Mother of Us All. Uh, we watched the... We watched a production pr- that yeah. was held in the American wing of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Alright, the City. Met for us lay people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was held right before Corona got bad. It was like in early February. Mm-hmm. Um, and The Mother of Us All is, is a play uh, about... Susan B. Anthony's life and you know unique to Stein is that it is you know very much about Susan B. Anthony right (laughs) you normally can't say the aboutness of a Stein piece but this one you can be like Susan is is the gravity here yeah she's the main character I mean there's not it's not like a biography because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of histories overlaid and there's fictions that that hang out with these actual historical people of course but, I mean, you know, it's a fairly, for her, straightforward work. Even, you know, compared to some of her other plays, it's far less improvisational. Mm-hmm. There are, like, very uniquely, like, very thematically mm. dense repetitions. Oh, yeah. And, um... Uh, yeah, this, this is, like, the thematic rhythm that's very uncommon in her work because it does seem like it's striving to, like, get at a message. It, it's right, worth... even if the message is confused or confusing. Yeah. No, it does feel or like confusion. that. confusion. Right. Mm. Yeah, mm. because, I mean, she's very interested in victory, the problem of victory, and the problem of being part of history. But, you know, and there's mm. also... You know, like this kind of theme of love and spurned love, right? Or lost loved ones that we see. And I mean, there's an overt politics in this, with regard to electoralism and with regard to civil liberties. Mm-hmm. You know that that I mean, Stein is simultaneously in support of and critiquing through her characters, and you know, expressing social concerns about via her fictions and characters that she, like, writes, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, I don't know where you want to start with the play. I mean, I, I was pretty, I haven't watched any of Stein's, uh, plays or... Oh, we should, we should also say, we should correction this, this was an opera, like, That's uh, right, I was just it's, it's a libretto. Yeah, written with her and Virgil Thompson? Yeah, Virgil Thompson, I think, did the original 
score. Yeah, he did the score. Okay. But yeah, I haven't seen any of her plays or operas performed or recorded, so this was a first for me. Um, I don't know about you. Yeah, I mean, I've seen clips of things here and there. Yeah. Um, so I've never seen a Gertrude Stein play or opera performed or recorded before. Um, and the first thing, I mean, that I think, you know, an audience or me in particular noticed is the breath that Susan B. Anthony takes in uh, right before the uh, opera begins. Um, and I mean, this just felt significant to me as a kind of, you know, the, the I mean, it's, you know, it's funny because the, the orchestra is right there on the stage, but like it, it felt to me like, you know, the, the conductor signaling to like raise your instruments. It, it felt similar to that of just like, you know, the voice being the prime instrument here. Uh, that that carries the logic of the play forward along with the movement of the actors but like you know specifically in connection to you know ashbury saying about how the 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 rhythm of social life can be felt in uh the the literature of its time you know in stein taking this breath in and exhaling it kind of or in susan i'm sorry this this preparatory kind of time travel that you know the the opera projects literally onto the wall at the end with 1820 1920 you know so i mean if if we view breath and the rhythm of breath as a unifying kind of historical motif i, I just use i just use that as kind of this connector there um which is less founded than probably whatever you could say. Yeah. Uh, oh, it's just yeah. just something I found interesting. Yeah, that's a good observation. I guess one thing I wanted to do first was kind of characterize mm -hmm. um, the, the, the general, you, you know, a kind of feeling or a kind of style that brings all of Stein's dramatic works together, mm -hmm. which is that you know, th there are characters, and they right. they have differences. Like, they're, they're different people, they're meaningfully different, and they're different because of what they say. Mm. And w what's interesting <laughs> is yeah. that they, they do a lot of saying, and they don't do a lot of doing, mm -hmm. but they talk a lot about things they have done or might be doing, and very right. often they narrate things that they aren't actually doing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all about saying, it's, it's all about talk. And that, that's something right. that carries over into this play, even if it is probably the most overt of her work. Mm -hmm. We should also say here that this is like a late work. This is one of the last like full things she did, I believe. Mm. And it's the last thing included in um, the uh, Library yeah. of America yeah. collection. Mm. I have the work. <clears throat> And I guess one more thing I'd want to situate our viewing of the play in is that, like, this work was, you know, before 2020 became a meme. Very much trying to connect <laughs> 2020... Wait, wait. Oh, I'm sorry, continue. Like, connect 2020 to 1920, which is when women's suffrage happened. Hmm. Um, making, a, making it out as if, like, 2020 already was a very significant voting year. Yeah, it's obviously... <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of uh, electoral anxiety in this, and you can see the kind of, you know, surface-level um, prescience of putting a play on like this, or importance, even if the message is confusing. Yeah. And confusion. Yeah, well, because, I mean, it's a celebration of women's suffrage, so the 
logic goes put on the play that's about why women's suffrage is good because Trump hates women's suffrage. <laughs> it's it's not it's <laughs> right. uncomplicated. But um mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess, you know it is, as, as Tilda was hinting at, it, it is very contradictory and strange. And really the only takeaway you can get from this is that, like, you know, the, the kind of feminism in this, I guess, is just that Susan B. Anthony is, like, historically significant and contradictory right. and alive in her memory as the male historical figures in the play who are people like Ulysses S. Grant and like Daniel Webster. John Adams. Um, John Adams. Yeah, <laughs> just, you know, American political figures. So, the so, right. you know, she's kind of, if she's celebrating anything, she's celebrating the fact that like a woman has the ability to be as historically relevant and complicated as Mm -hmm. the male figures of history. And I think you're right to point to the frequent and, you know, repetitive or emphasizing negation, you know. I mean, watching this, I mean, this being like the first dramatic work of Stein I've experienced, you know, it very much felt like the process of negation and her emphasis of, you know, uh, movements recurring are, you know, a, a formal logic that moves the play forward. You know, she she's only able to have... Her, her characters need to think through all of the permutations of a... Um, sorry, a, a position or a, um, you know, a, a thesis of a syllogism. And, you know, then need to go through the permutations of I will do this, I will not do this, I could have done this, I could have not done this. And, you know, it, it drives the characters forward through their thinking, even if it doesn't uh, conclude with a positive statement. You know, it, it concludes with the having got, having exhausted options, you know, and then, and then moves forward to the next jumbling of, of, of uh, negation and positivism. Yeah, and I think that this style is made or has a relevance to the message of the play. Because, I mean, ostensibly being about suffrage and rights, a lot of what the play is about is, like, Susan B. Anthony kind of as a sort of mythical, timeless Mm -hmm. figure coming to terms with her like, historical immortality and inevitability. (laughs) Yeah. And I think... You know, Gertrude Stein is in the play for a second. And <laughs> yeah. I think that what the people in the Met production did right is that they cast a woman who, who did, you know, resemble Miss Stein. <laughs> this is very clearly a play in which Stein, as she very often does, is, is considering the fact of her own canonization. Like, she knows that right. in, in some way... Like all the other great American poets, she knows that she's going to live forever in her words. And mm-hmm. Stein is, is very concerned with coming to terms with that and understanding all the different 
Mm-hmm. And I could balance sense of that. Um, right, and very funnily, there is a, a, the bust of Stein you pointed out that, you know, is briefly illuminated in the shadows that they walk yeah, past yeah. sometimes. Yeah, exactly, in the American wing. I, I don't know if it's usually there. but they I don't, brought, I've never seen it. I don't think it is. I think it's part of the Met collection. Or, yeah. you know, they have access to it. But right. Like, yeah, there's a bronze bust of Stein <laughs> that Susan B. Anthony hides behind at one point. So... So the, the, the identification is clear. But, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a weird argument or, like, tension in the play about, histori- about like, determinism and constructivism. Because mm-hmm. at one point, Susan B. Anthony says, in a conversation with Daniel Webster, um, she says... Do we do what we have to do, or do we have to do what we do? Mm. I answer. Um, and I, I think, you know, so do we do what we have to do is kind of like, do we... You, you know, like, that that's sort of putting the historical impulse before the person, that people are driven by things. But then there's this kind of, like, produced inevitability in the second part of this this question. Yeah. Do we have to do what we do? Is that, like, people kind of produce their own inevitability? Mm-hmm. I think this is probably the most famous line of the play because it is sort of central. It does kind of resolve or attempt to resolve a tension that's usually allowed to just, you know... Exist. Permeate, yeah. yeah. It, it permeates the play. And it's kind of... It's Antagonizes is a pleasant name. <laughs> I really like that yeah. one. Yeah. And it, 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 you know, it answers, but the, the answer is the word answer. It's the action of I answer. answering. Yeah. It, it's that, It's also you know, the affirmation. Yeah, so it kind of preserves individuality and choice within mm-hmm. history, which seems deterministic. And I think that's a very interesting effort of Stein's to kind of think about a kind of historical determinism and Mm. resolve in that her sort of belief in like great historical figures who push history Mm -hmm. um yeah I mean it's a question of like the kind of Hegelian teleology in, in that it's um you know, I mean, at least in this in this opera's performance, it's you know, it it wants to connect it to the Trump twenty twenty election, which would be to assume that suffrage has a connection to this, and you know, we can say it does because historically it has developed to this point, and we can you know, view factors then, view factors now, etc., and look at material conditions and do our analysis thing, but like you know, to say that Stein was really concerned about this is kind of silly and besides the point. You know, and to say that the uh, symbolic destruction of the ballot box, which isn't even really that important in the play at the end, you know, before the lights go out, means anything, I think is also beside the point. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think it says anything about the election. I don't think it's, you know, it's one of the male figures, which is who is in opposition to Susan B. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, it's one of them who stomps on it. And, you know, is this to say you're stepping on women's suffrage, you're stepping on, you know, voter uh like tampering with you know voter rights etc and you know barricades to voting or is this you know a fruitless gesture of history 
and you know it would probably be the latter um but i really cannot tell <laughs> what the people what uh lisa prosko or whatever her name was uh intended which you know i think intention is probably besides a lot of this yeah i mean i think the intention is just flatly that it's it appears to be a celebration of suffrage and a concession that this fight is not over. I mean, sure. and there, there's a lot of language surrounding Susan B. about fighting, about the persistence of fighting. It does appear to fit well into a lot of the quote-unquote like resistance rhetoric <laughs> of yeah. the Trump era. Of course. I mean, there's also, like you were talking about before, a lot of questions of forgetting. You know, at one point when the question of forgetting appears, you know, uh, it's coupled with bodies, like, you know, falling asleep and or dying on stage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, I think we can connect it to, you know, Gertrude Stein's question of whether her she will have a legacy or be forgotten. You know, it's interesting because she's kind of got a legacy that no one reads. Yeah. <laughs> which is Which is interesting in its own right in that, like, you know, the books as material have survived in this kind of virtual sense but you know not that she's a living historical influence necessarily to everyone like she might have had imagined mm -hmm. it seems like susan b endorses like a kind of constructivism mm -hmm. there's one point where she says there is no humanity in humans there is only law and you right. will not because you know so well that there is no humanity there are only laws you know it so well that you will not you will not vote my laws. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mean... She's... And there's a really funny moment where, like, you know, she's like, I I was successful. The word male is in the Constitution now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is a, a gesture of success, which is uh, ironic in its failure. Yeah, I mean, that, that part is very funny, because, I mean, Susan B. Anthony, obviously wasn't around for universal women's suffrage yeah. some i think at least you know a couple states did have it mm -hmm. but um on, on a federal level there wasn't women's suffrage mm -hmm. and after the civil war and the 14th amendment they did add to the constitution that all people are created equal and that all men or all male people have the right to vote so the kind of joke is is that <laughs> the, the constitution <laughs> got more specific yeah. as to who could not yeah and that susan b convinced them that women are people and <laughs> also convinced the men who make the laws that <laughs> that they could men are the kind of people who vote <laughs> right. and you know then there's this very funny part where susan b and i think Anne, who's like a fictional character, you know, Anne says like, what is men? What are men? Um, and then, then in this page, when they kind of have this discourse about what are men, comes with, with like a very specific, at the time, but I think they tried to make it relevant here, critique of Stein's of a kind of masculine political behavior. Yeah, the, the part I'm referring to is, is when she's talking to Anne about men, the idea of being male, mm -hmm. and she kind of identifies men with, you know, white men, first of all. Black men are kind of excluded because, you know, part of the play is happening in a time where, mm, yeah. um, you, know, you know, black men didn't have suffrage either. 
And, you know, what she says is that men are afraid. <laughs> That's how she defines them. And she yeah. kind of defines men as as conformist and as a mass animal. Mm-hmm. And this is very clearly a response to World War II, mm-hmm. the rise of fascism, fears about Stalin and Stalinism. Right. And, I mean, I think this here is where her point is most compatible with a kind of, like, Democrat liberalism, that there's something useful about, like, feminine plurality right. that can, you know, save us from mass politics and encourage <laughs> us to be more individualistic and the more open. The transgender debate's getting a little debate. too hot for me right now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, you know, that, that part is, is very interesting because it's the most explicit. And then we have another debate earlier on that seems to be the most deliberately mystifying. And that <laughs> happens to be um, a part where this character, Joe the Loiterer, who is a very strange character. Mm-hmm. He's a man and his role is very weird because he's certainly not aligned with the oppressors. Right. No. We'll have to talk about him. But... At one point, he's confused about what being rich and poor are, and his mm-hmm. friend, um, what the hell's the guy's name? Like, Chris the Citizen. Chris the Citizen tells him to go talk to Susan B. And, she knows. Uh, yeah. So when Joe the Loiter asks him, uh, asks Susan what being rich is and what being poor is, he tells her that the VIPs, which are just kind of the men, the guys in charge, won't tell him. He counts on her to answer him. And her answer is this. Rich, to be rich, is to be so rich that when they are rich, they have it to be that they do not listen, and when they do, not he- and when they, do they do not hear. And to be poor, to be poor, is to be so poor, and they listen and listen, and what they hear, well, what do they hear? They hear that they listen. They listen to hear. That is what it is to be poor, but I, I, Susan B., there is no wealth nor poverty. There is no wealth. What is wealth? There is no poverty. What is poverty? Has a pen ink? Has it? And Joe the Loiterer responds, I had a pen that was to have ink for a year, and it only lasted six weeks. <laughs> right. And I, I, I don't th- And then she goes, yes, I know, Joe. I know. Oh. And... It's indeterminate. There's, I don't think, much to make of that. I mean, I'm sure somebody could kind of point out, you know, the way, the kind of, like, Hegelian way, I guess, each one is constituted according to a kind of opposition or negation. Right. And how Mm -hmm. that structure is in the language, rich is not poor, poor is not rich. Mm-hmm. but also is internally coherent, that somehow their self-awareness is also structured according to, like, an internal opposition that has to do with, with with this, like, othering of themselves, mm-hmm. the hearing themselves. Yeah. I, I just don't know how fruitful that would be, especially since there's this very pathetic ending that Stein does where they just talk about a pen losing its ink <laughs> prematurely. You know, there's a kind of... <laughs> Right. impotence in the play relating to this question it just, it just doesn't <laughs> solve it as if you know in the American 
historical mythology there's there's not really a space for the discourse about being poor and being rich you know there's this kind of like aestheticized struggle for suffrage but then the struggle or you know the struggle of, of, of having means and of having mm. economic power is it's just kind of dissolved yeah, I'm trying to... Th this isn't fully formed, so let me know if we need to think about it more. But I'm trying to figure out, like, what critique is inherent in the, the pen metaphor. Because, you know, uh, I mean, the first thing that occurs to me is a kind of uh, uh, opposition to stated, stated use value. I mean, because Joe is like, you know, I had this pen, supposed to last me a year, lasted six weeks, you know. And there's the idea of like, okay, you were sold the pen based on something probably uh, that told you this pen's going to last a year and it can't know what your individual needs are as a person who uses a pen. And so, you know, the, the ostensible use value and the individual use value of said product are like mismatched. Mm -hmm. And, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't think Stein was thinking this far into it but I, I do think it's something latent there of like you know the 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 advertised product does not meet the needs of the person and you know you, I, I could say something about how I, I, I hate expiration dates <laughs> sell by dates are, are lies to you and they're earlier even though <laughs> I buy expired milk at this point <laughs> so I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but that, that part was interesting to me and, right. and that kind of, I'm sure someone could develop that further yeah. than me. I mean, I think you'd have to look at, you'd have to reconcile those, the part where she says, but I, I, Susan B., there is no wealth or poverty. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, because she's also just saying it does, after she does her... I mean, it's kind of relativism that I don't know if I agree with. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean... What I kind of find interesting here is that, like, this, this, this particular passage of Susan B's is particularly fraught, and not fraught in the kind of playful right. Stein way. Like, especially, but I, I, Susan B, there is no wealth nor poverty. There's the kind of dumb internal rhyme, mm. but there's also the failure of the passage to follow as a sentence or as an emphasis right and you know there's this kind of thought i have that maybe connects to ashbury's idea of, of doing the impossible of making felt a life that can't be had in language that mm. even if it is mystifying it is allowing us to articulate a kind of poverty or a kind of Right. A, a kind of disbelonging or, or lack that I think might be the politically inadmissible dimension of the American avant-garde mm. is that d despite whatever political intentions it has, the like function of the artwork is to produce a kind of unity mm. and that any an intelligent writer any particularly good writer like Steiner Ashbery who's concerned with literature's descriptive who's concerned with literature's like ontological descriptions mm -hmm. 
has to do like a lot of repression and mystifications in order to produce anything like beautiful. Reflection on the atom bomb. They asked me what I thought of the atomic bomb. I said I had not been able to take any interest in it. I like to read detective and mystery stories. I never get enough of them, but whenever one of them is or was about death rays and atomic bombs, I never could read them. What is the use? If they are really as destructive as all that, there is nothing left, and if there is nothing, there is nobody to be interested, and nothing to be interested about. If they are not as destructive as all that, then they are just l a little more or less destructive than other things, and that means that in spite of all destruction, there are always lots left on this earth to be interested or to be interesting, and the thing that destroys is just one of the things that concerns the people inventing it, or the people shooting it off, but really nobody else can do anything about it, so you have to just live like a long, so you have to just live along like always, so you see, the atomic bomb is not at all interesting, not any more interesting than any other machine, and machines are only interesting in being invented or in what they do, so why be interested? I never could take any interest in the atomic bomb. I just couldn't any more than in everybody's secret weapon. That it, that it has to be secret makes it dull and meaningless. Sure, it will destroy a lot and kill a lot, but it's the living that are interesting, not the way of killing them. Because if there were not a lot left, <laughs> because if there were not a lot left living, how could there be any interest in destruction? All right, that is the way I feel about it. And really way down, that is the way everybody feels about it. They think they are interested about the atomic bomb, but they really are not, not any more than I am. Really not. They may be a little scared. I am not so scared. There is so much to be scared of, so what is the use of bothering to be scared? And if you are not scared, the atomic bomb is not interesting. Everybody gets so much information all day long that they lose their common sense. They listen so much that they forget to be natural. This is a nice story. <laughs>